0: This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 23, Antipolitics and the Philosophy of Dissent. Derrida was about as difficult technically as things got. So the reading from now on is going to be technically easier. I mean, still very intellectually dense, but not technically as tricky. Um... So in some sense, today is the last new philosophical material I'm going to give you. And both lectures next week, on Monday, more narratively, and on Wednesday, more conceptually, are going to bring together themes from the whole rest of the course. Um, So now I'm going to try to transition you. We're not going to be moving so much upward through time today as we're going to be moving horizontally. I'm going to be moving you from France in particular to Poland and Czechoslovakia more generally. Um, and looking at the same period following 1968. Um, so I tried to get you into Derrida as he kind of comes out of structuralism. you know, Engaged in a critique of structuralism. And to give you a sense of how Marxism here is playing a role as a version of structuralism. Um, Both as its own thing, because it's also moving through time, but also as a system in which everything has a place, um, and there's a kind of will to order, order via positionality, and concepts remain stable. And Derrida comes along and he takes apart the whole notion of stable concepts. And in some sense asks us, to reflect upon why we're so obsessed with stable meaning. Why does meaning have to be stable? Maybe it's better if it's not stable. Maybe it's more creative. Maybe it's more free if it's not stable. And for Derrida, this kind of linear temporality, teleology, closed systems, an autonomous subject, a transcendental ego, these are all fictions in some way that need to be problematized. Problematize was another one of these big postmodern words like discourse and deconstruct for which we were charged a dollar in graduate school that went towards the nut house fund if we really needed to use them. Every other word was problematized for some period in the 1990s. Um, And for Derrida, deconstruction is political and political in the good sense, in the best sense, in that it deconstructs ideologies that it is an antidote to the way of thinking that gave us a totalitarianism of both radical right and radical left. An antidote to the totalitarian thinking of both Nazism and Stalinism. Now it leads us into a place where words like, and concepts like truth, certainty, reality, those words, those ideas in and of themselves then came to be seen you know, in these by postmodernist, as kind of ideologized, authoritarian, even fascist constructs. And then we're left with the question, if there is no truth, what can we do in the world? What can we base our ideas on? If reality is only constructed by discourse, composed of signifiers always creatively but also capriciously and unpredictably at play with one another, then does any reality exist at all that we should care about? that we should invest in. Now this, by the way, is what René Girard rejects. You know, he's part of the same conversation, but he insists upon this extra discursive reality. He insists upon this world in which, yes, we're all engaged in deconstructing text and finding out what is hidden in them, but there's always a reality behind the text. And for Derrida, there's always a real victim. The scapegoat is a real scapegoat. You're still performing certain kinds of deconstructive analysis on text, looking at the ways in which meaning reveals itself despite itself, in which meaning subverts itself, but for Derrida, there's always a reality behind the text. And he's pushing back against a postmodern inclination to be skeptical towards all truth claims. Um, I'll read you two more short quotes by the sarcastic um, anti-postmodernist British critic Terry Eagleton. And he says one advantage of this kind of deconstructionist dogma that we are prisoners of our own decor- discourse, unable to advance reasonably certain truth claims because such claims are merely relative to our language, is that this dogma allows you to drive a coach and horses through everybody else's beliefs while not saddling you with the inconvenience of having to adopt any yourself. It is, in effect, an invulnerable position. And the fact that it is also purely empty is simply the price that one has to pay for this. And then he adds, uh, still more sarcastically, about Saussure, the great um, Swiss linguist, founder of su- structuralism. Eagleton says, if Saussure could have foreseen what he started, he might well have stuck to the genitive case in Sanskrit. So the question now that this leaves us with, that I want you to have in your mind as I'm going to take you through what's going on in Eastern Europe, is whether in this rejection of, of history, of linear time, of teleology, of the self, of a possibility of a stable structure that allow us to grasp a kind of determinate meaning, what happens then to responsibility? So in some sense, the key word for today you know, along with truth and subjectivity is going to be responsibility. What happens to responsibility? So in 1966, the same year of this famous John Hopkins conference where Derrida presented Structure, Sign, and Play, and he met Paul Deman, and that friendship began as well as the beginning of what you could call a Yale School of Deconstruction, The very same year was the 10th anniversary of Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956. Um, That was in February 1956 In October 1956. There was a communist reform movement in Poland. I won't tell you the details of that, um, but it was called the Polish October and it seemed to inaugurate what would be a new optimistic time of a revisionist Marxism. On the 10th anniversary of that, in 1966, um, Leszek Kolkolski, who is a philosophy professor at Warsaw University, and we've heard about him as a revisionist Marxist, he was invited by his students, um, most famously by Adam Miknik, who will come to play a role later in today's lecture as well, to give a lecture on occasion of the 10th anniversary of this Polish October. The 10th anniversary, in some ways, of revisionist Marxism. And Kowalkowski, who is still a Communist Party member at the time, gives a very harsh lecture and says that none of those optimistic promises have been fulfilled. You know that basically the regime is now filled not with Stalinist believers um, but with cheap opportunist, um, and that moreover the Communist regime in Poland is operating on the principle of negative selection. Negative selection is a concept I refer to very often. Um, but the idea of negative selection, whereas precisely the very worst people, devoid of any sense of conscience or responsibility, are being selected for positions of power. It feels very anti-evolutionary. Um, in any case, Leszek Kowakowsky gives this lecture at Warsaw University on the invitation of Adam Miknick and other of his philosophy students. The Communist Party leadership is furious and Leszek Kowakowsky is expelled from the Communist Party. Um, that's the beginning of various cracks brewing. Um, two years later, really a year and a half later, in March 1968, a whole group of Kowakowsky students Adam Miknick and his friends, essentially, from the generation born after the Second World War, 47, 48, 49, who are his students, who are his university students at the time, quite young, 18, 19, up through 22, 23, they revolt. They revolt against Communist Party censorship. Um, there are demonstrations, the Communist Party cracks down with violence against the students, and a lot of those people, including Adam, go to prison. Um, That is called, or is referred to as the anti-Zionist campaign in Poland, which is somewhat euphemistic, because it's in fact an anti-Semitic campaign aimed against the fact that many of the student leaders of these demonstrations were of Jewish origin although they were almost all from communist families. None of them considered themselves Jews. I'm gonna leave that topic aside because it will distract us. Um, But um, that was a moment of great disillusionment with the possibility in Poland that communism could be reformed. That was March 1968 because these were precisely the students of revisionist Marxism who had been getting together and reading the young Marx and thinking about praxis and alienation. Um, That was kind of the end for them. And then, just a few months later, as they're watching very carefully, some of them from prison, what is happening with revisionist Marxism and socialism with the human face in Czechoslovakia, then you have the Warsaw Pact invasion of Czechoslovakia that is then the decisive nail in the coffin of hopes for revisionist Marxism. It's the end of socialism with the human face. So those twin events in Eastern Europe of 1968 really indicate the end of Marxism. The end of Marxism as a kind of living, living, breathing ideology, and as the last great grand narrative. um, It's hard to convey in a short period of time just how devastating that was for so many people. In some ways, less for the students and more for the generation of their parents. If you were over 40 at the time and you had given your life to this worldview, to this philosophy, to this ideology, to this hope of a utopia, to give up on that was the negation of your entire life. To turn in your party card was the negation of your entire life and the admission that it was a failure. So the devastation, the sense of total collapse, that now there is nothing, where do we start? Now we're starting from scratch. You know, all of this thought had been leading us up to this point, to this belief, to this path, you know, to our glorious utopia, and now we're left with nothing. So what comes next out of those ashes is going to be quite different in Eastern Europe from what it is in Western Europe. And this is a very interesting moment of divergence. And I'm simplifying a bit, um, but there but schematically, I kind of want you to understand these as two different responses that at various times will kind of overlap or interact to this death of Marxism and to the death of grand narratives. Um, after the, I'm going to take you back to Czechoslovakia now. So Prague Spring happens. Socialism with a human face. Soviet officially Warsaw, ta- Warsaw Pact tanks come into Prague. They violently put down that experiment. Now after that, the cat is out of the bag in some sense, because now everybody in Czechoslovakia knows that this was not what anybody wanted, because they've just been run over by Soviet tanks. So it's then very hard to say, tell people that really they were rescued, or really they were saved, or really they were happy to see these Soviet tanks. Nobody was happy to see them, um, and everybody understood that the new kind of neo-hardline, neo-Stalinist regime that is put in place is something that is imposed from without. It's not something that comes from within. It's not something that every, anybody chose. It's something that's being inflicted on them. Um, but by and large, the population accepts it. By and large, they don't fight back. Um, what follows is referred to as normalization which is another one of these more than euphemistic but deceptive words, normalization being a return to a hard-line neo-authoritarian leadership. And the new Moscow-installed Communist Party government in Czechoslovakia takes a huge chunk of its budget and transfers it from capital investment into consumer spending. So everybody's standard of living basically goes up. And the accusation is made that in Czechoslovakia after 1968 people traded their freedom for new refrigerators and little cottages in the country. Um, There was a compromise made. Everybody knew that nobody wanted this, but the population in some sense was bought off and resigned themselves to what was happening. There's a, th- this does not happen in Poland. Poland takes a, a somewhat different path, and there's a joke about, this is a very nerdy historian's joke, but there's a joke about the two dogs that meet on the Polish-Czechoslovak border in the 1970s. Um, and the Czech dog says to the Polish dog, well, why are you coming to Czechoslovakia? And the Polish dog says, well, to eat, because they have plenty of everything in the stores. Um, and then the Polish dog says to the Czech dog, why are you coming to Poland? And the Czech dog says, well, to bark, because the regime is much more hard-line. The censorship is much more hard-line in Czechoslovakia than it is in Poland. Those were the compromises made. Um, OK, that might not be the greatest. This is a very dirty historian's joke, but now you know it. OK, the metaphor that is then used all over Eastern Europe, but most pointedly in Czechoslovakia because it was the greatest hope for socialism with the human face, you know, and because the way in which it was bought off, sold out, was particularly ostentatious. Um, the metaphor that was used is that of Dostoevsky's Grand Inquisitor. So the Grand Inquisitor is a parable that is told in the context of the Brothers Karamazov, um, which Ivan, who is the one who is trying to figure out um, if you could possibly believe in God, and generally saying, like, it's not God I don't accept, it's this world of gods. You know, and if God is dead, then everything is permitted. So Ivan is telling this to his believer, spiritual brother, Alyosha, the parable of the Grand Inquisitor. If you have not read the parable of the Grand Inquisitor, you should all read the parable of the Grand Inquisitor. I probably already told you this, but one of my first Russian teachers, um, who's from Kharkiv, said to me, you know, in Russian we have a saying, the world is only divided into two kinds of people those who have read the Brothers Karamazov and those who have not. Um, So you all, over Christmas break, can read the Brothers Karamazov. Um, The parable of the Grand Inquisitor imagines that we are in Spain during the Inquisition and Jesus returns to earth. Jesus returns to earth during the Spanish Inquisition when heretics are being burned at the stake for not believing in Jesus enough. Jesus returns to earth and is immediately imprisoned. Um, People are not, in fact, happy to see him, and the Grand Inquisitor, the one who is persecuting all the heretics, goes and talks to Jesus in prison um, and explains to him that nobody actually wants him here and that, moreover, he's trying to give people freedom, but that's not what people want. People want security. And the Grand Inquisitor says to Jesus, for there has never been anything more difficult for man and human society to bear than freedom. So in the end, people will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, enslave us, but free us. And they will finally understand that freedom and the assurance of daily bread for everyone are two incompatible notions that can never coexist. Um, And at the end of this parable, I'm, I'm now going to kind of give away the punchline. Spoiler alert. Alyosha, the deeply believing brother, says to Ivan, he says, But that's the Grand Inquisitor's secret. He doesn't believe in God himself. And Ivan says, yes, you've guessed it. That is, the Grand Inquisitor has only one secret, and that secret is he does not believe in God. And this becomes the metaphor for the communist regime in Czechoslovakia during normalization after 1968. The communist regime has only one secret. The Communist Party has only one secret. They do not believe in communism. And everybody knows they don't believe anymore. Yeah. Just everybody knows the emperor's naked. And the emperor knows the emperor's naked, and everybody is pretending. Huh? and everybody goes around and uses this language as if it were true. And the symbolic the offender of the use of language to pretend that things are true is the phrase that is used to talk about the invasion of Czechoslovakia, which is fraternal assistance. The act of fraternal assistance <laughs> that, that, that came about in August 1968. The, the brotherly help that came to us from the Soviet Union in, in Czech. But this fraternal assistance was always the phrase that was officially used to talk about the events of August 1968. And of course, everybody knew that this was not an act of fraternal assistance, that it was a violent invasion. Um, after that, in Czechoslovakia, you have this kind of post-Stalinist, neo-hardline regime that is very different from the era under Dubček of socialism with a human face, but also very different from Stalinism. Because the era of the believers is over. Now you have opportunists. You don't get the same level of terror. You don't get the show trials. You don't get the people being systematically tortured in dungeons. You get a lot of people being thrown in prison, but you don't get the kind of graphic gruesome violence that you had during Stalinist terror, but you also don't have believers. You know, Everybody is just kind of playing along. You still have the dialectics of power by which everyone is both infinitely vulnerable and infinitely powerful because anyone can inform on their neighbor at any moment and get that person arrested, but anyone can also be informed on any moment and be arrested themselves. Okay. So out of this time of, above all, I want to say demoralization, where everybody, the whole society knows that they are living a lie, a whole society knows that they have been crushed, that they have sold out, that they have been battered, that they have given up, you know, under, under the threat of force and under the use of force. And out of all this, something very beautiful is going to come out. You know, out of all this you know, one of the great philosophical currents of modern times is going to come out in response to this kind of demoralized despair. Um, And Vaclav Havel, who, you know, will be known for many things, Um, including being the imprisoned playwright who sits for years in prison and is then going to become the first post-communist president of Czechoslovakia. When all is said and done, he's going to be remembered for one particular essay that he wrote called The Power of the Powerless and for his paradigm of the greengrocer. And I want to spend a chunk of time today telling you that story of the greengrocer, Grocer, which I think is the single most important text that encapsulates the philosophy that's going to come out of Eastern Europe. Um, but let me, let me start first narratively by telling you um, about the events that are going on. Um, So, after 1968, there's this, you know, there's a gradual installing of this neo-hardline regime, there's demoralization, there's increase in living standards. Um, What happens at that time in the communist bloc and in the Cold War more generally is a kind of detente, a kind of, you know, vague truce during the Cold War and the signing of something called the Helsinki Accords in 1975. I won't get into the details of the Helsinki Accords, but it was basically Western powers and the Soviet Union and Communist Bloc powers signing an agreement in which essentially Western powers were trading recognition of post-World War II borders and a guarantee for those borders for human rights guarantees coming from the Soviet Bloc. So this so-called inviolability of frontiers was being traded (coughs) for communist government signatures on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which states that participating states will respect human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the freedom of thought, conscience, religion, or belief. Um, Now, this is a very vague, very abstract language, Um, and it's obviously very difficult to enforce and the communist governments that signed it never actually intended to honor it. Um, And the language might seem almost too diluted to be effective. But it was going to provide, after the collapse of faith in Marxism, a new language. At a time when there is a vacuum of language at a time when there was an absence of language, at a time when thinkers, when intellectuals, were looking for a language to respond to the world. So this language of human rights was going to become a new language of discourse, and it was ultimately going to be the language in Eastern Europe that would come next after Marxism. Um, It's it's to some extent an abstract language. It's a very universal language. And this is important, the universality of it. Now, the story I want to tell you now has to do with this this rock band, Um, a rock band called Plastic People of of the Universe, um, heavily influenced by the Velvet Underground. Um, After this class, you can go look them up on YouTube and listen to some videos. And they were basically young people in the 1960s who were kind of interested in counterculture, um, interested in free love, interested in drugs, interested in wearing their hair long I mean, for men and for women, um, interested in having lots of like concerts and parties and barns and out in the countryside, and being rebellious. And they start this band called the Plastic People of the Universe, which comes from some references that I won't go into um, that involve Frank Zappa and Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. and they feel like the proper language of rock and roll with which to respect, to express rebellion is in fact English. But this is communist Czechoslovakia in the 1960s and and the early 1970s, and nobody actually speaks English, really. Um, But at the time, there's this Canadian guy um, named Paul Wilson who kind of, out of curiosity about the world, Um, ends up in Czechoslovakia first teaching English and then learning Czech and then translating some literature in the late 60s and 70s. And he falls in with this crowd. Um, He learns Czech very well. He falls in with this crowd of these young people his own age. And they're looking for a singer for their Velvet Velvet Underground influence rock band who can sing in English. Paul would be the first person to tell you that He can't really sing that well. Um, But he is a native English speaker, um, and he likes to be helpful. So he ends up becoming their lead singer. Um, And then they have some some great lyrics, um, one of which is I'll I'll just quote to you from a song they have that is addressed to a Communist Party apparatchik, to a Communist Party official. And the, the lyrics go, what do you resemble in your greatness? Are you the truth? Are you God? What do you resemble in your greatness? A piece of shit. Kind of gives you a sense of the, um, the plastic people. Um, they were not a great band. Um, they, they did, though, have an extraordinary band manager, this guy named Ivan Yeros, who is an expert on Andy Warhol and an, an art critic, trained art historian. And Ivan Yeros is one of these characters that historians become obsessed with in history. He's in, in French, you would call him an animateur. He had this ability to make things happen and to talk people into doing things. Not because he had money, not because he had power, but just through the force of his mind and his charisma and his way of being in the world. Um, so Euros had this, this ineffable something you know, in French, you say the je ne sais quoi. He had that ineffable something. And you, when you talk to people later on about, well, wait, why did you do that? Why did you take this risk? How could he? And people would say, but you don't understand. You couldn't say no to Ivan Joros. He had this way of making you feel like it just had to be this way. So he was the band manager. Um, and by the mid-70s and shortly after Helsinki, it was clear that all these young guys were about to get themselves arrested. Um, For rebelling against the regime, if only in their underground rock concerts. And Euros and these young people who were part of what they called a second culture, an alternative culture, which was a lot of like young people, you know, having a lot of sex and doing a lot of drugs and, you know, having these concerts in barns without great sound, that they were going to need some support among at least another kind of intellectual elite who could reach out to the wider world. So Ivan Euros decides that he's going to find Václav Havel. Um, who is of an older generation who was born in the mid-1930s and who has friendships and connections with all of these famous philosophers like Karl Kosick and like Jan Patochka. And Yaroslav Seifert, the the, the Nobel Prize winners and the revisionist Marxist and the people who have standing in the world. So Havel this evening is on his way to a party at Pavel Kohot's house um, and Euros accosts him and says he must come listen to the music from this band, and he's got like an old cassette player, and first of all, the band is not great, and the cassette player is not great, and the recording is not great, um, and he takes Havel to this bar, you know, and he's making him listen to this music, which is generally not great in an overdetermined way, and Havel has this epiphany. And I'll I'll read to you from this conversation he has about this evening he meets Tiaros. He says, suddenly I realized that regardless of how many vulgar words these people used or how long their hair was, truth was on their side. It was obvious that something had to be done and equally obvious that it was up to me to do it. I also knew that it wouldn't be easy to gain some kind of wider support for these boys. I had almost nothing concrete to prove that they weren't the layabouts, hooligans, alcoholics, and drug addicts that the regime was portraying them as in the hopes of being able simply to sweep them out of the way. This case had nothing whatsoever to do with the struggle between two competing political cliques. It was something far worse, an attack by the totalitarian system on life itself, on the very essence of human freedom and integrity. A judicial attack against them, especially one that went unnoticed, could become the precedent for something truly evil. This was an attack on the spiritual and intellectual freedom of man. Um, so Havel gets taken in immediately. By Euros's charisma, he never gets to the party at Pavel Cohost's house. And it's very serendipitous that Euros capture, kind of catches him that particular night, because very shortly afterwards, everyone in the band is arrested, including Euros. Um, Paul Wilson is deported. He goes back to Canada. Um, and becomes Vaclav Havel's translator. And at that point, Havel mobilizes Jan Patochka, Karol Kosik, Ivan Klima, Pavel Kohot, whose party he missed, um, Vaclav Czerny, Jaroslav Seifert, and all of these famous poets and novelists and philosophers. And they send an open letter to the German author Heinrich Boll, appearing, appealing for international support on behalf of these young, young musicians. Um, of course, they, they go to prison anyway. I mean, Havel doesn't, none of these voices of intellectual authority actually have any particular sway over the communist regime. But something is set in motion. And out of this mobilization, Havel then begins to gather um, people into a more consolidated effort. So this was 1976, so as we move towards the end of 1976, he decides that there should be, there should be a letter asking the Czechoslovak government to respect the agreement that it signed in Helsinki to honor human rights. Um, And that that letter, that collectively authored letter, should become the basis for not a political opposition, but a moral statement. Um, So kind of moving on the mobilization that was achieved to protect these young musicians who couldn't the end not be attack, protected from arrest on January 1st 1977 they released something called charter 77 charter 77 only asks that the Czechoslovak government respect the Helsinki Accords and it laments the fact that human rights in Czechoslovakia exist on paper alone this is the famous phrase they use you know that that this The Helsinki Accords publication serves as an urgent reminder of the extent to which basic human rights in our country exist, regrettably, on paper alone. It goes on to say that this letter is the basis of a free, informal, open community of people of different convictions, different faiths, and different professions, united by the will to strive for the respect of civic and human rights in our country and throughout the world. There's nothing about an alternative political system. There's nothing about returning capitalism. There's nothing about anti-communism. It just asks that the government respect human rights. It says that this is not an organization. Charter 77 has no rules, no permanent bodies, or formal membership. It embraces everyone who agrees with its ideas. Um, Part of the idea here was that to engage in a political opposition was to have something in common with politics, which was to get your hands dirty. And the only pure space was a space outside of politics, this is where the phrase anti-politics comes from, that you need to contest the powers that be with a moral force that is transcendent of politics. And Helsinki gives them this language, this universalist language of human rights. Um, Havel then goes to an older philosopher named Jan Patochka, who was born in 1907, who was one of Husserl's last students. Um, In fact, he was studying with Husserl in 1933, and also studying with Heidegger at the same time. Um, All of his work was in some sense a dialogue between Husserl and Heidegger, and I will will talk about, I'll talk about him more um, on Monday when I return to Husserl and Heidegger. But he plays a very important role in the 1930s in bringing Husserl to Prague to give the lectures he can no longer give in Nazi Germany in 1935. Um, When the Second World War comes, Jan Patochka kind of lays low. He doesn't collaborate, but he also doesn't join the resistance. He kind of retreats into the library, into his study. When the Stalinists come, he does the same thing. He kind of lays low. He doesn't collaborate but he also doesn't resist. He kind of retreats into his study. In fact, one of the most interesting things I've ever found in the archives was Petochka's diary from um, 1948 when the communists take power in Czechoslovakia. And it's a time of of the bloodiest period of Stalinism. People are getting arrested right and left, and they're being tortured, and their show trial's being prepared. And Jan Potoczka is sitting there at his desk, and what is he doing? He's rereading Marx and Hegel and making notes to himself. And he's like, oh, but here... I see the problem. The problem is that Hegel and Marx, Marx following Hegel correctly identifies that the great problem is the problem of alienation. But he misunderstands the nature of alienation. Marx thinks that alienation is a kind of problem of a lack of completeness. It's like a wound that can be healed, that can be made complete. You know, that can be that the conditions can be restructured so that it can be fixed and what man had only partially can be given to him fully. But that's not what alienation is. Alienation is actually the fact that man is always other to himself and always other than himself. And that wound can never be healed. And it's fascinating. It's also there's something kind of terrifyingly self-absorbed about it because people's heads are being chopped off and you're sitting there rereading Marx and Hegel and making these notes to yourself. He then goes on to to translate um, Phenomenology of Spirit into Czech, which is apparently a a brilliant Czech translation of Phenomenology of Spirit. Um, In any case, he kind of lays low. He's never been particularly politically involved, but he's also never collaborated. Um, at least in any obvious way. Um, He doesn't get to teach at the university um, because he's thrown out during Stalinism and then he gets to come back with the Prague Spring, but then he's forced into early retirement when normalization comes. And then his graduate students gather together and they have him continue to teach them privately, kind of secretly in his apartment. Um, And so in the 1970s, he has this private seminar with his graduate students, once he's been thrown out of the university, when normalization comes, and what they do is they read Being in Time. And they read it again and again and again. And they read it aloud in German, and they translate aloud into Czech as they read. Um, And in fact that the current published Czech translation of Being in Time is based on those oral translations that that Potoczka does with his students. Um, In any case, um, Vaclav Havel comes to him at the end of 1976 and ask him to become one of the first three spokespeople, along with Havel and another one of his colleagues for Charter 77. And, and Patochka has never put himself out like this, but Havel is very persuasive, and Patochka agrees to do it. On January 1st, you know, the, the charter is unveiled, it's circulated, um, very sh- there are originally 242 signatories, um, the secret police come for them as everybody knew that they would. Patochka is 69 at the time. He's in weak health. Um, he is subjected to exhausting interrogations and he does not survive. Um, he, he dies in March. Um, 1977. And his death then really is like the death of a Socrates figure. Like, then, then his funeral becomes a great mobilizing event, which the regime tries to crush. Um, okay. Um, I don't have that much more time. So, what happens afterwards is that then Vaclav Havel and some of his friends around Charter 77 manage to get in touch with Adam Miknik. Who is momentarily not in prison, and some of their and Jacek Koron and some of their friends in Poland, and arranged to meet on a mountain called Snieżka, kind of meaning snow mountain, on the Czechoslovak-Polish um, border, to coordinate and to talk about what it means to resist. Um, now. If you know anything about both Adam Miknik and Václav Havel, the idea of them like actually like bounding up a mountain or hiking up the mountain is kind of hard to imagine. They're not super-athletic types. But they both get to the top of this mountain. Jacek Koron, who is there, is much more of an athletic type. They actually get to the top of the mountain. Havel is all, even you know, carrying up in his backpack a bottle of vodka. Um, And this meeting on the mountain is one of these legendary meetings when Adam Miknik meets Vaclav Havel. Many things would not have happened if Adam Miknik had not met Vaclav Havel. And they meet on top of this mountain, the top of this mountain in 1978 called Snieszka. And they have this conversation and Havel is trying to articulate the potential explosive force of very small actions, of very small actions of resistance, of a refusal to be complicit that anybody could do. And Adam Miknik, who at the time is, is publishing a sami's. journal sami's. refers to self publication it's what was published illegally underground during the communist period there's relatively more space to do this in poland than in czechoslovakia because the regime is harsher in czechoslovakia so adam Miknick is editing one of these underground journals he solicits an article an essay from havel about his ideas and says you get it to me and i'll publish it i'll publish it here in poland um, And so a few months later, you know, an anonymous courier appears at Adam Miknik's apartment in Warsaw with this manuscript that has somehow made it via different people across the border that Havel wrote in Czechoslovakia and is now sent to Adam in Warsaw. And that is dedicated to Jan Patochka and it's called The Power of the Powerless. And that text stars, and it's a long text I've given you, I think just like a crucial excerpt from it for this week. It's based on the paradigm of the green grocer. The green grocer is your ordinary guy um, in communist Czechoslovakia in the 1970s who every day goes into his shop and in the window next to the carrots and the onions, he puts the sign in the window saying workers of the world, world unite, the communist slogan end of the Communist Manifesto, Workers of the World Unite. And Havel says, why does he do this? Why does he put, wh- why does he put this in his window? Is it to be out of his sincere desire to acquaint you know, the customers and the passers-by with his, his communist passion and, and faith? And Havel says, no, the green grocer doesn't believe it. The customers don't believe it. Nobody who sees the sign believes it. Even, even the communist regime doesn't believe it. And moreover, the regime knows that the people don't believe it. And the people know that the regime knows, that they know. Everybody knows that everybody knows. And yet, nevertheless, everybody goes on putting the sign in the window and pretending. And Havel says, well, why does he do this? And he says, well, what else could he do? I mean, suppose one day he decides to take it down and stash it at the bottom of a box of rotten tomatoes. Well, someone could inform on him. He could be questioned by the secret police. Um, His children could lose their privilege of studying at university. He could lose his privilege of going on vacation with his family. If he continues to resist, he will be interrogated. He will be detained. He can ultimately be in prison. And Havel says, well, why would all these bad things happen just for refusing to put a sign in the window whose content nobody takes seriously anyway? And Havel says, well, let's imagine this. What if one day all the greengrocers were to take down their signs? That, he says, would be the beginning of a revolution. Therefore, the greengrocer is not so powerless after all, because he is powerful, he is also responsible, and therefore guilty, for it's the greengrocers who allow the game to go on in the first place. It's a deeply anti populist text. He essentially indicts the whole population and says the line between victim and oppressor here is running de facto through each person. For every one of us, in his or her own way, is both a victim and a supporter of the system. Because everybody is living a lie, they allow a regime of lies to go on. The result is mass demoralization and a spiritually bankrupt population. But, Havel says, if the main pillar of this system is living a lie, then it's not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living in truth. And here you see a very strong Heideggerian motif. But now he takes the authenticity, inauthenticity, and makes it explicitly moral. To live in truth is the authentic self, the break from the das manzelps. It's the more painful way to live, but it's the way that accepts responsibility and heeds the call of conscience. Now, the green grocer here is experiencing two levels of lying. He's lying about his faith in communism, but he knows he's lying about his faith in communism. He knows he doesn't believe in communism. Everybody knows that. But more importantly, in Sartre's sense of mauvaise foi, of bad faith, of self-deception. He's lying to himself about his own powerlessness. And that's the deeper lie. Because he is powerful. Because it's the greengrocers who allow the game to go on in the first place. Uh That paradigm of the complicity of, of the population and the responsibility of the population is going to be at the center of dissent. Um. Havel and his colleagues around Charter 77 will also come up with this idea of a parallel polis, um, most famously expressed by Vaclav Benda, which is a kind of parallel society where you live in truth, a parallel society where you replicate through self-organization institutions where you tell the truth and you live in truth. Um, It is filled with all sorts of instances of moral ambiguity, because living in truth, as we see in the case of the Greengrocer, entails cost. And there's this brilliant revelation of this, that the problem of morality in times of moral ambiguity, in a one-act autobiographical play that Vaclav Havel writes called Audience. And in Audience, Havel's ultra- alter ego whose name is Ferdinand Vanyak, is a kind of dissident intellectual who has lost all appropriate jobs and has to be employed because otherwise he'll go to prison. And so there's a nice brewmaster at a beer brewing place, the Czechs are famous for brewing beer, who like agrees to take him in and give him a job even though he doesn't know anything about brewing beer. Now, the price that the brewmaster then pays for this is that he has to file weekly reports with the secret police about this dissident intellectual who is at his brewery. And this is very stressful for the brewmaster, you know, who is trying to do a nice thing, but is not really very good at writing the reports. And so he goes to Vanyak and says, listen, this is the situation. I have to write these reports about you every week. You know, it's kind of stressful for me. They're making me do it couldn't you write them about yourself? I mean, really, you're a writer. It would be child's play for you. It would be no big deal. You could make up whatever you want. Whereas for me, it's really tough. I mean, I'm not used to writing, and it's a very stressful situation. And Vanyak says, listen, I really appreciate you telling me, and I appreciate everything you've done for me, but the thing is, I can't write reports about myself because I am then participating in a system I find abhorrent. I'm contributing to the perpetuation of the system I find abhorrent. Um, And so he refuses to write the reports because he says, please, please don't take me wrong. I really appreciate your goodwill. But for me, it's a matter of principle. Um, And the brewmaster then in this play breaks down. And he says, and what about me? You're just gonna let me sink, right? You're just gonna say, fuck you. It's okay if I end up being an asshole. Me, I can wallow in this shit because I don't count. I ain't nothing but a regular brewery hick. But the VIP here can't have any part of this. It's okay if I get smeared with shit so long the VIP here stays clean. The VIP is worried about the principal, but he doesn't bother thinking about other people just as long as he comes out smelling like a rose. All I'm good for is the manure that your damn principles grow out of. It's a brilliant passage. Um, you know, everyone is implicated here. The brewmaster is implicated. Vanyak is implicated. The regime is implicated. You know, ever, The brewmaster is a variation on the greengrocer. He's both victim and oppressor. All choices involve suffering, and there are no innocent choices. Um, OK, I only have a couple minutes, so um, let, me t- let me give you a couple of things in conclusion. Um, Havel does not come out of Western liberalism. Havel comes out of a kind of Heideggerianism that comes through Patochka. Havel insists on truth as being something that is real. Um, And he. One of the reasons that you know that truth really exists, that it's not all a language game, is because you know that lies really exist. So in some sense, the ontological reality of truth in the model of the Green Grocer is proven by its contrast with the ontological reality of lies. Um, and so you know that there is such a thing as truth. Um, seeking the truth, as Havel learns from Potocka, is a thing itself even if it's not there so easily graspable, you have to keep trying. This is something that Petoshka shares with Kowakowski. Kowakowski says, yes, the problem of the bridge is insoluble. There is no magical passage from subject to object. Husserl fails because all such attempts at arriving at absolute truth are going to fail. Nevertheless, you've got to bracket that knowledge and you've got to keep trying because if you give up on truth, you give up on ethics. And the philosophical move here is to say that a robust subjectivity is not what relativizes truth, it's what grounds truth, and truth and subjectivity are connected through responsibility. And subjectivity is going to become a a key word, both for for Havel and for solidarity in Poland, that the robust subjectivity is what is grounding truth. And I want to leave you with, I want to leave you now in the post-communist moment when the The revolution finally succeeds in 1989. Havel, after spending years in prison, is released in the mid-80s. He is then brought to the castle, the very beautiful fairy tale-like castle, in December 1989 um, and becomes the first post-communist president of Czechoslovakia. Um, in February 1990, he then comes to Washington D.C. to deliver his first address to a, a joint session of the, the American Congress as the first post-communist president of post-communist Czechoslovakia, and he stands up there, and you have to like picture you know, Washington and what you know about it, and he stands up and says to the congressmen and senators, consciousness precedes being, and not the other way around, as the Marxists claim. <laughs> it's kind of this brilliant moment. I mean, probably nobody there like remembered that part in the German ideology where Marx and, and Engels talk about how being precedes consciousness. But this was, ha- this was Havel's phenomenological point of departure that, that you have to start with the subject. And you have to take responsibility regardless, that consciousness precedes being is individual responsibility is prior to and transcendent of any kind of socioeconomic conditions. Um, and so he stands up there very innocently and says, consciousness precedes being and not the other way around, as, as the Marxists claim. And then one of the senators turns around and says to his friend, like, wow, if I could talk like that, I would run for God. <laughs> okay, I'll see you on Monday. Original recording and editing by Guy Ortoliva. Podcast production by Ryan McAvoy.